新しい野党そういう勢力が出てこないことにはこの国の壊れていく速度は加速度を増していってるところにブレーキが効かない状態になってしまう Welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, my co host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm okay, John. How are you? I'm good as well. So, today we're taking a break from our regular coverage of 90s Asian cinema for yet another special episode of Heroic Purgatory. We are discussing the online re- retrospective on the work of acclaimed documentarians Kazuo Hara and Sachiko Kobayashi, presented by Japan Society. We mentioned this last week in our news segment, so I decided why not do an episode on it.、Uh, you can watch these films on the Japan Society website, and I'll be sure to post links to that until July 2nd.、Uh, so that's why this episode will, com- will be coming out a little earlier than usual, so, you- so we can release it before that deadline, so anybody who's listening can- will have a chance to go and、uh, grab those documentaries. However, before we get to our main discussion, we'll do our usual thing, but we'll talk about what we've been watching or reading、uh, this week. So why don't you go first, Jason? Uh, so, uh, since we last talked, I've watched Assault on Precinct 13,、um, the original, directed by John Carpenter,、uh, Ronin, and Psychopath Season 3, all of which are available for free on Amazon Prime. And I've also started watching the Hitoshi Matsumoto、um, comedy documental.、Um, I'm on episode、uh, two at the moment, and I'm struggling through it because it's not funny. <laughs> okay. It's a live action? Well, Hitoshi Matsumoto is、um, famous for、uh, Downtown, a Manzai group,、uh, and also Gaki no Tsukai. So it's like he's one of the funniest guys on Japanese television. And Documental sees him gather a, a group of comedians, locks them in a room, and、um, they're tasked with having to resist laughing in order to win a sum of money. Of course,、uh, being comedians, Trying to make each other laugh, you'd expect that there would be、uh, great comedy involved. But、um, episode one, I didn't laugh once, and episode two, I'm struggling through it. That's unfortunate. There's, there's four seasons of it on Amazon Prime right now, so maybe it'll pick up. Yeah, I mean, if there's four seasons, maybe there's something about it. Although, again, it could be a cultural thing. Well, I definitely like、um, Matsumoto's、uh, Gaki no Tsukai stuff. He's very funny in that with the rest of the gang.、Oh, okay. So, it could just be this、uh, generation of comedians. 
or just being in that setup where you've they're stuck in a room and they've got cameras on them and they're not comfortable doing that sort of comedy. Of course, I'm just on episode two, so it's got to improve. Yeah, that's possible. And that's it for me. Okay. So uh, for me, I came off um, one of those busy periods after work. And I after, after that passed, I wanted to do nothing but uh, play video games. So I played a lot of Halo for the the last couple of weeks. And when I say a lot, I, I do really mean a lot. More than I've ever played, I think. I kinda I kinda wanted to I'd never played the third one, so I'd never finished the story. I'd played one and two. So I kinda I kinda finished one and two again uh, pretty much in one sitting. And then I started three and that's where I'm at. I I haven't finished three the trilogy quite yet. But that took a lot of my time. I I think I think I was so burned out from work that for a few days I wanted to do nothing but just kind of give myself into the the video game and I um I'm not sure I like doing that but it was I think it was necessary this time around. Yep, just to decompress. Exactly, yeah. I watched a an American indie film on Netflix on Netflix called Mr. Roosevelt and uh, I also watched obviously a lot of documentaries for from Kazuhara and Sachiko Kobayashi uh in preparation for our episode today but that's pretty much it for our for my media consumption uh this week okay uh, so after that we have our news segment there's only one news item that I've written down that's something that you actually told me you actually sent to me and um and uh something that we vaguely mentioned uh, last time although not not oh, maybe a couple of episodes ago actually and uh, we don't, we didn't uh, elaborate on too much. But there was a news article on SCMP, so the South China Morning Post, that says that um, uh, Stephen Chow has signed on to make movies, and I forget the number of movies that it was supposed to, or if, if it was a certain number or not, uh, for Tencent. And some of those upcoming titles may include Kung Fu Hustle Two and The Mermaid Two. Uh, do you think there's room for uh, more of the stories of those two films? Not, not really. Um, I wasn't crazy <laughs> about Mermaid 1, let alone Mermaid 2. And Kung Fu Hustle uh, was uh, arguably his last quote-unquote good film. Although it's not, it's not one of my favorites, Stephen. I don't know if you got, if in your marathon, of, if you got the, ch- the chance to see that one. No, I haven't uh, had the chance to see Kung Fu Hustle yet. It has, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting film, and I, I think it's definitely a... a a, a next step for in terms of complexity and and uh, and uh, story structure and all that. So I, it's certainly an interesting film, but I don't know if it's uh, pound for pound as funny as some of his earlier films. Uh, I I could see a sequel to that one. I don't think it's strictly necessary. However, I uh, from what I read in the article and and it's been a few days, so I'm sort of par- vaguely paraphrasing. It was the, his previous deal. Uh, since he moved making films in China with, I forget what company it is that he signed a deal on to make movies for them, which included all his recent films from Journey to the West in 2013 all the way to The New King of Comedy. He didn't make, he didn't generate the box office that it was part of the agreement, I suppose. Uh, so that's why he's signing on with a new company. And Tencent, of course, it's a, um, I'm not sure if you're, if people are familiar with it, but it's the company behind WeChat, which is, Pretty much the app that people in China use everything for, from uh, communication to paying to anything else. Uh, 
And also Tencent is also the company that is often accused of uh, theft of intellectual properties from the West. But but they also, I guess, are is a giant corporation. Corporation essentially is they're all involved in a lot of media production in China, I suppose. Yeah. So Stephen Chow is like the perfect content king for them. Yes. Yes. Although I wish at least if if he if nothing else, I wish. Uh, of course, he's not going to go back to making movies in Cantonese. They're just the market is not there. There's no, there's no point. But it, I, I, I wonder if he'll be if he just comes back to being on screen for this next. Because I think yes, he's he he has a lot of talent as a director. But I do think that there's a difference between, uh, especially for like that rare category of people who are actor directors. There's something special about you know their presence complementing. Their presence on screen complementing their directorial uh, duties, and I think he might be one of those directors who's who who in order to get the movie right, he also needs to be in it. It's like having the ability to add that extra dimension. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like it's almost like you have uh, you communicate with the actors and everyone else differently because you're also in the movie, so you have that extra perspective in it. Yeah. No, I've uh, I've stopped uh, with um, God of Cookery, and okay. um, I need to watch uh, King of Comedy. That might be actually the King of Comedy might be one of his better better films. So I'm, I think you'll you'll enjoy that one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Like, yeah, essentially all I've watched is like Ronin, and which I really enjoyed, and Assault and Precinct Thirteen. So, and the Kazuhara Sachiko Kobayashi documentary. So. I'll, like I'll want to decompress after so much serious subject matter, and go back to Stephen Chow. Yeah, and I think that's uh, probably a good segue for our main part. And that was quick, so that was good. But uh, our we can go into our main uh, part of the episode where we will, you know, casually, not not necessarily go deep into every single one of these documentaries, but we can talk about them as much as we want. And that is the retrospective about Kazuo Hara and Sachiko Kobayashi, who I understand are sort of uh, take respectively have the roles of director and producer in these documentaries. I had um, oh, and before uh, we actually go into the discussion, I would like to thank Japan Society for giving us the opportunity to actually watch these films, uh, these films, and I also would like to thank you, Jason, for actually arranging this and and making this episode possible. Yeah. Uh, so we can we can you know take a break from our usual coverage. We'll we'll tune to our next episode, of course, uh, and we can just have this uh, special episode of Heroic Purgatory. But why don't you? I I, sus- I would make the educated guess that you probably know more about this duo filmmakers than I do. So why don't you give us a little uh, a brief uh, sort of summary on their who they are, what they may, why are they known, and all that. So Kazuo Hara and Sachiko Kobayashi are a husband and wife team. Uh, he's the director and she's the producer, sometimes a uh, writer, on a bunch of uh, documentaries. Um, the collaborations go back to the early 1970s. When they, they first met, um, he was working uh, at a school for disabled children and he has a photographic exhibition with uh, disabled children as subjects. And um, she was an aspiring um, screenwriter. She was learning from the likes of uh, Oshima and um, Kaneto Shindo. And uh, I think she also had an interest in photography and uh, she went, uh, she also suffered from polio earlier in life. So uh, they met at his exhibition and um 
she they they both shared an interest in the subject matter and uh their first collaboration together was the film goodbye cp in 1972 so that is that is interesting i i I wasn't clear if she was in goodbye cp or they their first collaboration was in uh, extreme private errors love song but i suppose she was there from the beginning of his career i think you can see her in some shots in goodbye cp yeah, you can you can see uh, there's a like um, sort of key image used by Japan Society for uh, the season, um, and uh, again, thank you Japan Society for allowing us the chance to watch these films. Um, and you've got Kazuhara, you've got one of the subjects of Goodbye CP, um, and you've also got um, I believe it's Shiko Kobayashi who's writing things down in the background. Interesting, and interesting. It's, it's like a very evocative image of. The filmmakers at work with their subjects. Yeah, and I, I would. I mean, we'll, we'll get to this, but I would argue there's because uh, they made themselves uh, in their first two or three films. They made themselves a lot more part of the film in a strange way, a lot more part of the filmmaking process than they did in their later in their later documentaries. Yeah, as when you when you think of documentaries, you might think of something observational, like a Frederick Wiseman piece. Or, or talking Where, heads. Or, yeah, talking heads and uh, narrator. And in this, they're very much uh, unafraid of, you know, putting themselves in the action, having some effect on what's going on in the picture itself. And um, I would, their most famous work has to be The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. That's one that sort of introduced them to the world. But they've been winning all sorts of awards in Japan for things like A Dedicated Life uh, and earlier. Yes, and I, I must confess that I, I uh, did not know these filmmakers before. I had not, I don't, I, I wouldn't have recognized their names, although I was familiar with The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. I was, I was familiar with the title and I was familiar with the subject matter, and we'll, we'll get to that, but I had not heard of them or any other films that they might, that they had done throughout their career. Well, this is a, uh... This is why the Japan Society's season of films is so great because it introduces you to really seeing documentaries, uh, a style of documentary that uh, people may not be familiar with, and also um, the, this style of documentary, which is like based on cinema verite, allows you to get a feel of what the atmosphere in Japan was like at the time. Their later documentaries adopt a more conventional tone. I, I wouldn't call them exactly conventional because there's still no talking heads. And even when there are talking heads, they're done in an interesting way. But they're, they show sort of that air of someone who's, okay, already, I, I did my experiments. I know what I'm doing now. I don't have to try new things. I can, I can use more conventional uh, methods when I have to and then use my personal signature techniques when they're necessary so that's what i what impression i got from his later work yeah like the document the earliest documentaries are sort of inspired by cinema verite and it's also you also get the feeling that these are filmmakers trying to break into the industry and do something different and like you said they've progressed beyond that and they're able to take on maybe more of a uh, a macro view as well as a micro view of an issue what I what I love about, of course, you know, I I'm, I'm not a huge documentary uh, watcher. Occasionally, I do, but I'm, I'm certainly when it comes to Japanese or Asian documentaries in general, I, I my experience is extremely limited. So it was a nice, even beyond the subject matter of the specific films that 
we watched in preparation for this episode, it's also nice to get, you know, perhaps the unintentional glimpses of Japanese society that these that documentaries such as these provide that are not necessarily shown in Japanese cinema, that which is what I'm familiar with mostly. Yeah, you definitely get a sense of life in Japan from different perspectives, not ju- not just like uh, with conventional narratives. You're so focused on the story. Uh, that that's true. Yeah, a lot of um, um, uh, you know, a lot a lot of glimpses into you know, like especially his earlier documentaries, which is again heavily focused on certain subject, but you unintentionally get you know attitudes and 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 uh, behaviors of you know the average Japanese person. One thing one thing that it certainly confirmed is the 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 patriarchal nature of Japanese society, which is something that, of course, we're not, it's not a mystery, but it's sort of, I think, on full display on some of, some scenes in some of these documentaries. Uh, as in uh, the way, uh, like, what I've been thinking about recently is how um, Kenzo Okazaki uh, treats his wife in The Emperor's Naked Army matches on. Oh, that, that's, that's, that's the obvious example, but even, even in, um, uh, I suppose I suppose we can we can jump back and forth between talking about individual films and talking about the careers of these people as uh, in general. But if we jump into the first film, for instance, that was um, I think maybe the most uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite of of the film uh, it or or the their best uh, objectively film. I think that probably is uh, that distinction is held by their third film, The Emperor's Naked Mar- Army. Uh, but this goodbye cerebral palsy, goodbye CP or sayonara CP was certainly the most, I think, impactful. It just hit me uh, in 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 a way that I didn't expect. I mean, I had seen documentaries about dis- various kinds of disabilities and all that before, uh, but this was just, I it was in a way that I think it gave agency to the disabled more than any other film that I have seen before. But it was also, you know, in certain scene how dismissive people were of the women in their lives one by the fact that the women the disabled women were featured very very little in this film and the second was in that one particular scene where uh, the the one i think the main disabled character uh is uh thinking of quitting the the endeavor of making the documentary or appearing in the documentary and is just you know, his wife is clearly extremely upset, but neither he or his friends or even the, the director and wh- whatever crew he had with him, like even paid a, the slight amount of attention to her. It was they were all completely dismissive to her wishes and her emotions in that scene. They found that, you know, perhaps not something that I think the film was trying to be intentional about, but it just came out that way. Yeah, the main the main focus of goodbye cp is hiroshi okota who's like the leader of a group of people uh with cerebral palsy who have formed um a support group called the green lawn association and they sort of agitate and um do uh street performances in public and um in the scene you're talking about like um hiroshi okota we've seen him dragging himself along the streets of tokyo he suffers from severe cp so he would have to use a wheelchair but he's Gone using the wheelchair and he's dragging himself around the streets of On Tokyo. And yeah, and it's tough to watch as a viewer for his wife. And this is a very harrowing scene. Um, she's like, feels like you get the sense that she, uh, her, she feels like her husband's being exploited, that he's making himself out into a freak 
even though there's something he's deliberately wanted to do to challenge people's perceptions. Um, and she begs the film crew to stop. And um, the little boy who's too young to understand, he sees that his mother's really upset by this. And uh, we see it on the camera. She's practically in tears. Um, yeah. It, it, there's not even a hint of the director just, okay, pretending to put away the camera. He's like, yeah, no, not really. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, he's following her. And, yeah. the, and the little boy's like beating up on the father. He doesn't know, but he just exactly. understands that his mother's upset. And the other guys in the Green Lawn Association are just like, well, she's your wife. You can just ignore her. Tell her, you know. What so to that's do. what I mean. Yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about. Sort of this, this inherent patriarchy in uh, Japanese society that I don't think the film is at all trying to bring to the fourth floor, but it's just because it shows life as is we get these unintentional glimpses of it. Yeah, it, it definitely helps complicate the subjects because like Goodbye CP allows them the space to tell their stories. And um, with the original Japanese screenings, from what I understand, there were no subtitles involved. So you would have to get used to these people's cerebral palsy um, and their speech patterns and try to understand what they were saying. And um, when they're giving their interviews, they, they talk about their sex lives and you know, some of these guys have done very horrible things. Yeah, yeah. And you may, I mean, you, you mentioned it briefly, but I just want to uh, emphasize on the point that how the, the film opens with the one with a, I, I'm, I'm not going to remember the names, but the protagonist. Um, it's Hiroshi Okota. Yes, thank you. Uh, when he says, you know, I just, I just walk faster on my knees and then you see him cross the street and that, that just one continuous shot that is going from behind him to in front of him and uh, and his glasses fall at that point, which we see, uh, which we see constantly do. And the whole time, I was thinking, can someone get this guy a pair a rope to tie behind his glasses so it hangs on his yeah. neck when they fall? That just frustrated me so much. Oh, or when he's on the train and the train stops, he tries to get off at the station, and he's taking like a long time. You yeah, yeah. So that those are. Those are, and I understand, of course, I mean, this is, this is, I'm saying this half jokingly, I understand that this all was part of an agreement to film his life as is, but the whole time during either the train scene or, you know, that street crossing scene that what I was thinking was, okay, perhaps it would be better if you just put the camera down and help him cross the street. Uh, but And they end up doing that in the film. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, obviously that was, obviously that was part of their artistic intention to agree between the 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 fil filmmaker and the protagonist i'm not i'm not saying that as a criticism but it, it did it did certainly make you make you think about you know sort of this the, this interve interventionalist la or at least lack of intervention that that it makes you think of the filmmaker being there and uh filming this but also uh having uh, not interventionist but voyeuristic that's what i actually meant to say um this almost voyeuristic from on behalf of the filmmaker and the the audience where there's there's this benefit from other people's disabilities uh but of course there's no other way of showing the struggles that they that they endure yeah i can imagine audiences may not have considered how unfriendly urban or well, spaces can be to disabled people and it seems cruel to leave hiroshi okota you know, crawling around on the ground, but that's the whole point of the film to show the world from their perspective. Yeah, and that's again, no, knowing that that was also, an, again, that's something that it was his intention. And the green, the green lawn, was it? 
uh, Green Loan Association. Association. That was their intention in making this film. And from there's a, almost a throwaway line in the film saying that they actually put their own money in the making of the film. Yeah. Um, a number of the protagonists in um, ha- uh, Kazuhara and Suchiko Kobayashi's films like co-financed the productions. And of course, I th- I couldn't obviously the, obviously the film is clearly not shot in thirty five millimeter. I wonder if he was shot in sixteen or or super eight or something like this because the quality is very low. I yeah, I've read it's sixteen millimeter. Okay, that's I mean that makes sense. Um, yeah, and so you can you can tell that you know making it look technically good was not at all a priority for the filmmaker at the time. Yeah, it's it just helps the impact. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, absolutely. Um, there was one, uh, one thing that I kind of, again, sort of an aside that I became obsessed with was the guy with the camera. Uh, the hmm. so he was a he was a he was a friend of the protagonist or something. There were several people with the camera, but there was one guy that was featured a lot more prominently than the others. I think his name's Koichi Yokozuka. Okay, and he we see him. Uh, he s- sort of celebrates having. Uh, uh, the, he celebrates the birth of his daughter with yeah. his wife, who also has CP. And also, he also talks about how difficult it is for him to get the shot. And uh, and you see, because old obviously these old cameras had the lever, the the film advance lever, which is which mm. is because I, I I do have one of I have I have old cameras and I have used them with film, and uh, and it's 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 such a it, it feels like you're cocking a gun, like it's that's that's how that. It's it's an extremely simple motion, but I'd never thought before how cocking the camera, cocking the shutter on on a on an old manual film camera, how that very simple gesture on 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 making the camera work, which at the time obviously was a necessity, but because there weren't any other cameras, how the complicated that would be for someone with a condition like cerebral palsy, and you can see him, you know, like kind of twist his hand around the camera trying to trying to uh, advance the film lever and it's just I, I don't know why that is that's stuck to me but it seemed such a so, it's almost a tragic sort of consequence that he he used that camera to to feel closer to quote-unquote normal people and it's just such a struggle for him to operate it in the most basic of ways yeah and there's also the sight of like people turning away their gaze from this person is it is it reticence about being uh, caught on camera or is it a case of like they don't want to get involved with someone different from them uh, that's that i mean I, I would say it's a combination of both and it's also i think a statement on how long it takes him to take a picture whereas because you know obviously if you go on the street and try to take picture of people most likely they're not going to want to it's it's a normal response but you can be quick about it and snap candidates but he can do that and i thought that was also part of part of the whole uh part of that whole statement yeah i was i was also obsessed to find out what model camera he was using and i couldn't because the quality of the image was uh the resolution was so low i think it was a minolta but i'm not 100 percent sure it was it i could not read the logo so i i hadn't even thought about what type of camera <laughs> I, that, that's what i'm that's what i'm saying i was i was i think i think the film did not intend for me to get obsessed with that character but i just was and i spent so much time trying to pause in the right places to be to see if i could tell the camera but no just the, the quality of the of the image was not good enough i don't think there was any moment where there was a good enough close-up in that camera to 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 tell them what model it was but i, I really wanted to find out yeah okay so any, anything else about uh goodbyes uh, goodbye cp uh 
that it ends on such a note of despair. Yeah, and then it's the and it's also it, it kind of almost breaks from that cinema verite that you said, and it ends in a very stylistic. Uh, well, it's not the last shot, but it's close to the end with him in an in an empty street with a fog behind him and all that naked, and the camera just zooming out. A friend of mine said that um, Hiroshi Okota later um, hijacked a bus, <laughs> so that shows you the sort of the the um, extent of the despair, how far it is pushed that, him. Is that the protagonist? Yeah, the the chap oh. who who's um, dragging himself around. Interesting. Oh, I, I, I mean, I suppose, like, how do you know the details of that? That that kind of that kind of makes me want to look it up. I had intended to look it up, but I didn't get around to it. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, that, um, that'll the, be interesting. How he accomplished it? Yeah, this this friend sent me um, like um, excerpts from a drama that was released around that time of um, disabled people uh, in uh, Tokyo and. Um, the main character in this drama was a war veteran who was part of a suicide squad, um, and it, it went horribly wrong. He ended up disabled, and um, in the drama, he tries to tell the younger characters just to keep on living their lives. So, uh, like documentaries about disabled people were coming to the fore. People were interested in um, disability rights activists in America, and you also had um, Minamata disease as well, which was in the headlines in Japan. Yeah, I tried to I tried to find information about this Green Lawn Association on the Green Lawn Movement, and I I couldn't outside the context of this film. So I'm, I'm assuming it's not a movement or an association that survived very long, although I, I don't know for sure. Uh, well, the same friend sent me some uh, information and some of the poetry that Yokota wrote, so uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. Okay, cool, cool. But it's all in Japanese. Oh, uh, okay. But yeah, perhaps, perhaps it's not a it's not a movement that got uh, a lot of international attention. I suppose. Mm. Okay, so the next film that he did uh, a couple of years after this was a more personal project. And it was um, uh, Extreme Private Era's Love Song 1974. And this, is, uh, this was a sort of him following uh, his ex-girlfriend around uh, and her various um, exploits that she got into after they had separated. And of course, I, I'll let you give you an opinion of, on the documentary, but this was uh, perhaps my least favorite of, the, of the, the series, but I'm wondering what you thought about it. I thought it's. Uh... Really fascinating. Um, the, obviously, um, a lot of these uh, films, especially the early ones, focus on individuals. Um, the season calls them iconoclasts, and Miyuki Takeda, who's the main focus of Extreme Private Eros, she's a really interesting character to follow. She's influenced by the student movements at the time, radical feminism, and um, Sachiko Kobayashi has commented that. that um, Kazuhara's interests in sort of disability and um, feminism came from Miyuki Takeda herself. I don't disagree with anything you said. I I do think the documentary is very fascinating. I didn't say that uh, when I say it was my least favorite. That that's a more personal statement than um, uh, than anything objective of the documentary. I do agree with you. The the, the protagonist Miyu, Miyuki Takeda was it her name? Yeah. It's an extremely interesting subject, and I totally understand why someone would make a documentary about her. Um, however, I, 
the documentary made me uncomfortable in certain ways that I'm I'm not sure I'll I'll I can recommend it or well not recommend it but I I don't know that I would want to revisit it because for example in the beginning he says I decided to make this film as a way to get closer to her and that's perhaps true however I got I got a very punitive almost as if he made the documentary to record her failures or her struggles that came as a result of her leaving him. I don't know if that makes sense at all. There was like this was perhaps his most personal documentaries. It was so personal that I didn't that I didn't I didn't want to get that close to the to the filmmaker. Almost like revenge porn if I use if I use a very crude term to describe it. Like that's that's how that's sort of the feeling that I got from this documentary um in the same way that the first one made me uncomfortable in a good way in a in a it took me out of my comfort zone this made me uncomfortable in a in a sort of a bad way that i i don't know that i like very much i i made a mess of that explanation because i i still don't know exactly i don't i don't i'm not 100% sure what it was that it that it bothered me about this film uh, so I tried his best to put it into words, but it is that the whole vibe of it just kind of didn't didn't sit very well with me. There's an it feels like there's an element of spite to it. Ex- exactly. You know. Okay. Yeah. So I, sh- I that's that's the perfect word. There was a spite that I think that on behalf of the filmmaker, whereas that it didn't need to be there for the documentary to work. It's you know it, this like you said, this is a very interesting subject to follow around, but the filmmaker made himself so part of the documentary. That his personal feelings that I don't think were the just the pure interest or the pure desire to get closer to her and his child with her, uh, those were not it. I think there was an element of spite and and perhaps even personal revenge for for leaving him that were not not major. And I'm not trying to cast this as a bad guy, the filmmaker, but they were there, and I think they did surface throughout the making of the film. Well, Hara doesn't come off looking good in this because we see him jealous and also manipulative exactly. because he brings exactly. Sachiko Kobayashi in. And I think it would be a much more negative film if Miyuki Takeda wasn't such a strong individual herself. Like She makes mistakes, but she keeps going forward. And she takes control of the documentary by saying, look, I want this, this, and this recorded. I want you to record me giving birth. Yeah. And she she wins over the audience. I think yeah. that's that's I think what makes makes the positive aspects of the documentary uh, win over the negative aspects. Yeah, absolutely. And we see her evolving sort of um, ideas about feminism and um, collective action, and also like race relations uh, throughout the film. And it's interesting to see, even though she gets knocked back, she keeps going forward, and that's what makes her one of sort of the great iconoclasts in this series. Also, again, sort of the same half-joking criticism that I, I gave for the first one. That birthing scene, I think, even even if I wouldn't wholeheartedly recommend these uh, the documentary, I would for that birthing scene because it's, so, uh, it's so provocative and so brutal. But then again, it's like the same thing. Why are you not helping him cross the street? Like, she's there's two people with her in the room and one is holding a camera and the other one is shoving a Microsoft, um, a Microsoft, a microphone <laughs> on her face while she's giving birth. And the whole time I'm thinking, okay, can someone at least grab the baby? Cause she's yeah. about to sit on it. Can you just like move it five inches to the side? So it's not under her and just like put a pillow under her or something like, 
that, again, it's, I, I understand that that was all, she agreed to that. She wanted to give birth. Obviously, it's never stated, but I assume she chose not to give birth in a hospital or under the care of, of medical professional, but it's still kind of, it, when you watch it, it is, it does kind of aggravate you and makes you think, oh, for God's sake, someone give her a hand, put that microphone down. You're not list, listening to anything anyway, so and help her or something like that. Yes, this is a feeling that viewers will get, especially in the older films where, like, the sense of, like, of, of course, you know, filmmakers, some filmmakers strive for objectivity, but there's a point where, you know, human decency has to come in. And it's an interesting moral question. Interesting moral questions arise from this. This is a very overused phrase, but you change the story simply by the fact of deciding to tell it. So pure objectivity is impossible, even in the most objective of documentaries. Yeah, because the filmmakers are culling thousands and thousands and thousands of hours down into a narrative of sorts. Yeah. And uh, of course, I, I like, uh, like you said, like you said, he doesn't come exactly that, uh, the filmmaker doesn't come off that well in this one. And especially, I, I did laugh out loud when he introduces his girlfriend for the first time, who she's not, she's not there the first time he meets her, he's there alone, or at least that's the assumption that we make. And the second time he brings his girlfriend in with him. Uh, I don't know if he was his wife at that point or not, uh, but it does feel like a very spiteful move. Oh, you've moved on. I'll show you that I've moved on as well. Uh, but it, it is funny when after, immediately in that scene and immediately after, she just goes on to list all the negative qualities of Kazuhara, and he just kind of sits there and films. I just, I, I would love to see his face <laughs> in that moment. You know, as she says, he's this, he will, uh, he'll just have sex with you and then leave you afterwards, and he's, he will do this and he will do that. and. Just, just clearly, you can clearly see that part of it is perhaps uh, unaired grievances, and then part of it is just generated by the jealousy of him bringing his girlfriend to, to like, kind of uh, show in her face or something. Yeah. But again, this plays into sort of, like, evolving ideas of collectivism and femininity that, oh, feminism, that um, Yuki Takeda and Chiko Kobayashi kind of become friends, and Takeda helps Kobayashi with her own birth. Yeah, I did find it, um, I don't know if this was just a, you know, filmmaking convenience that he focuses, uh, you know, the most memorable scene of the film is uh, Takeda uh, giving um, a birth and we stay so long on her, but when his girlfriend gives birth, uh, it's, it's a very, very brief scene. It doesn't seem to have sort of the same passion. And, you know, he even admits that he was too nervous with Takeda's birth, uh, so he couldn't even keep the image in focus. But he seems perfectly fine when his girlfriend uh, gives um, it gives birth. So I'm not sure if there's something to read in there that perhaps he still cares about Takeda a lot more than he cares about his girlfriend, or maybe I'm just looking, to, um, you know, making too much out of that. I don't. Know. It's going to be one of those things where it would be great to get a DVD or some film notes just to uh, get Hara's commentary on how this went yeah. down. And but, I wouldn't. I, I. I. I'm always, you know, psych, trying to psychoanalyze the 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 artist behind something. It's always almost a, a a slippery, a dead end, slippery slope, which I probably shouldn't be doing. Yeah, and there's like a difference in how the two women give birth with Takeda. It's in Hara's apartment, and it's just the three, and then the four of them. Oh, and the, they've got the boy there as well, so it's five. But then and he's crying the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was that, that was interesting. He's like I, thinks his mom is dying or something. <laughs> I wonder if that's traumatized him in some way. Uh, yeah. And 
And then you've got Chiko Kobayashi, who's in our, our women's commune, and um, she's got help from others. So maybe that's um, sort of reassured Hara, and he's able to sort of um, execute the scene uh, much more effectively. That's true. That's 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 certainly a possibility. Although I wanted to ask you what what role this women's commune played in Japan. It seemed to me odd that they would even like what what, what is their purpose? What what is their um, what was their role in Japanese society back then? I don't know if you would know that. So I'm not too sure. I can only guess that it's part of like the emergence of uh, women's liberation movements and sort of trying to um, take back control of their bodies, which is sort of a perennial issue in every society around the world, even today. So would it be part of a statement giving birth with, not in a hospital statement setting? Because that, that also, again, me being a person of science, you know, birth can be an extremely dangerous. Uh, there's a reason why before modern medicine, infant and, and pregnant women mortality was extremely high. So birth can be a very dangerous uh, process. So I was, I was a little bit disturbed. And again, that nothing to do with the quality of the film. It's just, okay, why wouldn't you do give birth at a hospital? That's, that's serious. Yeah, I could, like, with regards to sort of like natural childbirth, this is Miyuki Takeda making a statement like, I'm in control of my body. That's how I read it. It completely is within her character to 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 do and believe something like that. So it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel extraneous at all because we get to learn her, we get to read her letters, we get to see her making statements about what weakness is and how she will never raise her child to be weak and all that. So it totally makes makes sense that um uh, uh, that she would choose to give birth in an environment like that. Uh, but speaking of, I'd be really curious to, to know what happened to the kids that were born, in the, like her first child and the two kids that were born. Yeah, whether they're now working in an office or if they are as wild as she had hoped they were. Or even how did she turn out? You know, did she stay in a woman's uh, commune forever? Did she, did she go back to Okinawa? Did she stay in Tokyo? Did she, was she close to Kazuo Hara the whole time? How, how did that uh, work out? Yeah, it's something that's sort of left tantalizingly open. Um, one would hope everybody's safe and well. Yes. Uh, okay, so anything else about this documentary? Uh, yeah, just the, the role of men. Just that every guy in the film is pretty much trash. Yeah, so including and, the filmmaker, yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, they reinforce gender roles. It doesn't matter if they're Western guys who are exploiting Japanese girls or Japanese guys who are exploiting Japanese guy, uh, ladies. Not girls, ladies. I think all I don't know if the I, I don't remember if the documentary mentioned this, but I think all the American uh, and African American, but American anyway, uh, people were part of the U.S. Army that were stationed there. So it's sort of never I, I, there was never a, a we know as as viewers today or maybe even back then at least Western viewers that they they were temporarily there. They would never forge like when she says, "I really want to." A serious relationship with his guy when I think she writes him in a letter or she tells him in Japanese and the guy doesn't understand who's sitting next to them. I don't remember exactly how it happens, but sort of I knew there that okay, that's not happening because he's just the station there, and as soon as he's his uh, uh I don't I'm not sure what the word for his tour or duty ends, he'll co- he'll go back to the U.S. or wherever the hell he goes. Yeah, this is like the tail end of the Vietnam War, and you you can like. Judging from how Takeda speaks about him, she's got romantic ideas of 
uh, maybe he's much more sophisticated than other GIs, that he's politically minded because he's a, a black American. Maybe she has um, some ideas about Black Panthers or sort of leftist movements in America. And it turns out that he's just another guy who's you know only interested in one thing. Yes, yes. And when the two are having a conversation, you can see there's just, they're not connecting and it's really tragic. And then her, she evolves beyond that uh, relationship to have some anti-colonial ideas afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I mean, that I mean, we only see him, Paul, I think his name was Paul. Yeah. We only see them having conversation, but he's just, essentially she's in sort of a broken, but nevertheless understandable English. She's making a sort of semi-political statement, and he's just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's just agreeing with her. I mean, obviously, it's, uh, it's hard to, to, again, psychoanalyze the character, but he just, he just seems there to be agreeing for the sake of agreeing. Well, when he starts talking about he can only trust stuff with his own eyes, it's kind of like, no. When people start talking about trust, they've got issues. Oh, oh, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't make much of that, but yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely possible. Yeah, and Takeda says that like he came from money and he he willingly joined the army, so like he's just an, another imperialist. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. shall we move on to the next one then? Okay, that's the Emperor's Naked Army marches on in nineteen eighty seven, released in nineteen eighty seven. So yeah, this was I think perhaps it's not my favorite, but I would say this is perhaps is certainly the one that he's most known for. And maybe objectively his best documentary. I mean, obviously that's a that might be a ridiculous statement in itself. What's objectively the best? But it is perhaps his most acclaimed documentary. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think it's the one that sort of brought him international attention. Um, that there are a bunch of um, quotes uh, from the likes of Michael Moore saying that this was like the best documentary ever. Yeah, um, Errol Morris. Uh, yeah. So you've got these acclaimed documentarians saying this is the one you have to see. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I would I would say that if you if you see only one film from this pair, uh, I would say see this one because it 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 I I I one of my greatest fears is forgetting World War Two um, as a society. I think I think we are headed in a dangerous way, in a dangerous direction, simply because we are the generation that lived through that is it's pretty much almost entirely died off there's i'm sure there's a few left obviously but i think uh it's it's a it's a dark future a future that we don't remember and we don't uh learn from the mistakes of everybody's mistakes that happened during world war ii is a dark future and that's why i think this is a very very important documentary that sort of you know outlines what some of the horrors of war are in general, and specific to that particular war in that particular country. And the issues raised in this film are pertinent today because uh, we're still going through uh, questions of how we remember history um, and um, nationalism as well. Uh, Absolutely, as, yeah. As we speak, you know, um, the big debates uh, in uh, America and um, Britain is like critical race theory. It's like nobody knows what it is, but everybody's got an opinion on it. and. Um, like how people interpret history is now part of the cultural battleground between um political forces left and right exactly and even even i mean even a less abstract example than that is people you know younger generation have been asked to 
uh, described to say what Auschwitz was, and I forget what the numbers were, but there's a, 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 a scaringly high percentage of people who never heard of Auschwitz and they don't know what it is. Or they don't believe the Holocaust happens. I mean, I would say that's a, a smaller minority, but yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah, this is just uh, cultural ignorance, which um, points to, I suppose, uh, media not uh, doing an effective job of teaching people what happens and yeah. s schools, but also the public has a responsibility to learn these things as well. And um, there's a brilliant line in this film uh, where Okazaki, you know, we've seen him um, chase the truth. And um, in one of the final confrontations, he's like, the public has to know the truth to prevent wars. And it's kind of like, however you feel about this guy, you know, whatever moral questions are raised by his sort of violent actions, like he's got a point. That's true. And I think, I think that's right. I think, I think he is a, a, a bit of an unhinged person. You know, like I said, I, I, I respect his ideals, but I wouldn't want to have dinner with him. I, have you seen the film Man Bites Dog? Oh, the, I, I know of It's the one where the, um, the Oliver Stone one is based on. Yeah, it's like a, a documentary film crew. It's a Belgian film, and a documentary film crew follows a serial killer. And yeah. he, he's kind of nerdy, he's kind of genial, and it's all fun and oh, it's, all, it's all interesting from a filmic perspective until he turns the tables on the film crew and starts chasing after them. And it's kind of like you've got that dangerous character in real life with the, with Kenzo Okazaki, who's like the war veteran on the war path in the Emperor's Naked Army marches on. Yeah. And speaking to our previous uh, uh, discussion, what the one that you just mentioned about interpreting history, there's a very poignant scene about that in the film where I think it might be the first or the second person that he visits about, you know, what uh, one of the people that allegedly might have shot the two, uh, the two soldiers that they're inquiring about for most of the film. And he's, you know, he's, he doesn't want to admit it. And in the end of that dinner scene or, or whatever scene that is, that scene where they are sitting down around the table with a brother and the sister of the deceased and they're talking and he says, I don't want to, I don't want to shame the dead. I don't want to shame the dead. And he finally admits, well, they were deserters. I don't want to. I, I didn't want to admit that because that that brings shame on them. And the Okazaki just looks at him and says, "Nobody cares about that today. It's not. It, people don't think it deserting. It's shame." So again, I I thought that was a very very almost a throwaway line, but a very powerful one. That you know, like this guy is stuck in the past. He's still operating under that mentality that they're those two soldiers brought still bring shame to their family because they were deserters and that sort of uh, i think that perfectly uh, delineates where japanese society still is at the time of the filming or at least that generation where they still they still have pretty much the same mentality that essentially led them to war the only thing that is preventing them from being at war now now is that they no longer had the means they lost everything in the war so they couldn't do it again yeah it's and not just japan but elsewhere like the idea that don't rake over history because it brings shame. It makes people feel uncomfortable. These are the arguments that conservatives who are happy with the status quo and some ignoring crimes of the past keep bringing out. And Kenzo Okazaki keeps reminding everybody, look, I don't care. I, I attack the emperor. Yeah. And he keeps, I love how he just threatens to call the police whenever he does something wrong. But he's when, like every even the hint of someone, of something, he, any wrongdoing says, you know what? I'll just call the police. I don't care. This this is this is a very serious subject, but 
the film is very funny in the way yeah. that sort of Japanese etiquette and social mores are observed. And then they'll yeah. suddenly break down when a wrestling match occurs because Okazaki can't contain himself. He'll be respectful, but then he'll just insult someone to their face. And you can see they don't know how to respond because, and again, I'm not an expert in Japanese etiquette and Japanese norm, but I, I have glanced, I think, here and there from movies and such. And it seems like it just makes people so uncomfortable because it's not within their uh, upbringing to just kind of insult him back the same way that he insults them. So that's, that's certainly like their discomfort. It is a, a big source of humor in this film. Yeah. And uh, people use it uh, with him. Uh, they uh, speak to him respectfully, even though he's throwing punches at him or he's planning on um, going to the capital with uh, a vehicle adorned with uh, anti-emperor slogans. Yeah, but also you can see for many of them, like sort of the guilt that he inspires, like with his insults. Like you can, there was a couple people who may admit something that they did. They may admit their cannibalism or their their murders after the war ended. And you can see in their face how guilty they feel, how they're like at the brink of confessing because uh, confession cleans the soul or whatnot. But uh, they just, they just, for some reason, they just can't bring themselves to admit that the terrible things that they did during the war. Yeah, I, I can't remember which uh, soldier it was, one of the NCOs. Um, but uh, at, at one point, Okazaki uses his wife and a friend uh, yeah. uh, uh, to uh, portray like the relatives of these two guys who've been shot. And um, one of the soldiers involved in the firing squad, uh, he just confesses everything to them. And I felt so <laughs> I felt kind of bad for him because that's on film forever and he's not actually confessing to relatives. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, and they're just the, I mean, the, it's, there's, there's no beating around the bush. I mean, the Japanese did some terrible, terrible things during the war. And they were, of course, for some of them, for some of them were cornered, uh, partly because of their own, you know, um, almost, almost blind uh, obedience to the, uh, to the ideal of the emperor and whatnot. And part of it because they were also cornered by the allied troops. Uh, but also it's, I, I found, I found the, the line of Okazaki to one of the generals, I think it was the actual general who ordered, the captain who ordered the, the execution. So Koshimizu. He said, well, he said, we had to do what we needed to do to return, to survive. And he said, no. He said, any other nation, the soldiers of any other nation would have just surrendered under those conditions. But we had to keep fighting for whatever reasons. And I thought that was a very poignant admission of, of guilt from Okazaki on behalf of the entire nation. Yeah, it is this sort of blind obedience where, which does give them some cover, where they can just say, look, this, this was an inevitability, it was military order, and orders always came first. And Okazaki's like, it, that just doesn't wash anymore. Exactly, yeah. And it's, you know, at the time, of course, the emperor was still alive. I think the emperor died in 85, mm. uh, Hirohito. What yeah. when did he die? I uh, I know the new emperor ascended in the eighties. I would say the Showa emperor in the eighties. I don't remember. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so the, the, at the time, the emperor was still alive, but it was towards the end of his life. Um, yeah, and he's been retained as a figurehead for the nation without actually having to answer for the crimes that um, the military committed. Yeah, and and so the people will blame. Um, 
like will constantly comment and in fact people when i say people it's usually not historians but that's a different point sort of blame the americans about what they did uh to Japan during the war, including the atomic bombs and the other bombings that they did to the city. I will, I will, I will defend the Americans and the Allied force a little bit because they were responding to a horrific opponent. However, what the Americans, the terrible things that the Americans did were not during the war. They were, they were after the war where they allowed the war criminals to stay in power in Japan. That's, that's my, that, that's my, my whole statement of it. I think I think anything the Americans did during the war, or most of the things the Americans did during the war, were justified in the context of that war. Of that war, but once they defeated the Japan and allowed them to, to the war criminals and the emperor, especially to same power, that's uh, that is, in my opinion, their greatest crime uh, in in that in that region of the world. Not just in the Far East, but also in the European theater as well. That's oh, absolutely. That's true. Yeah, and there's a document. I you're certainly familiar with Masaki Kobayashi. Yes. Um. Uh, but he did one of his last film was a documentary on the Tokyo trials. Mm. And he shows, and it was it's a like a four and a half hour documentary. Uh, and it shows, uh, it shows mostly edit the the trial mostly edited but with commentary on top of that. So it's not a particularly groundbreaking documentary. But one of the thing is. The judges and everybody kept insisting, "Why isn't Hirohito testifying? Why isn't Hirohito testifying?" And they never got an answer for it. And it was most likely because he was being protected by uh, the Americans or the Allied powers. And generally, the conclusion that the documentary uh, that documentary reaches is that while Japan did do terrible things during the war, the Tokyo trials were mostly a sort of a a, a theater. Uh, where hmm. it was sort of to 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 maintain the appearances that war criminals were punished, but the actual true war criminals were still pretty much unscathed, including many biological warfare scientists that were simply brought into the U.S. to develop biological warfare for the U.S. because the Soviets were also developing biological warfare. So anyway, that's that's a different discussion, but it is I think relevant to uh, Okazaki's points in this film. Like I think uh, during the course of uh reading around um uh devils on the doorstep by uh like certainly in the wikipedia entry for like japan's um uh occupation of china one of the me uh, members of the imperial uh family was actually in china directing forces that committed war crimes and you know of course the the the, the one war crime that they talk about in this film was cannibalism which is i had never i had read a lot about it in fact uh the a former U.S. President George H.W. Bush. I don't know if you knew this. He barely escaped from from one such group, uh, one group that was sort of later convicted for routinely killing their prisoners, their you know prisoners of war, and eating them because they had nothing else to eat. Mm, I had no and, idea. Oh yeah, yeah. So he was he he was part of a nine member team, and eight were captured, and four of them were eaten, oh, uh, and he narrowly escaped. Uh, and was rescued by a U.S. ship or something like that. Well, I think one of the things this film gets across is that it wasn't just foreigners who were uh, like under threat of this, it was also Japanese people. Like the two yes. soldiers who were executed, they were subject to cannibalism. And it was never made clear, and it was, so, so, you, I'll let you finish, but it was, uh, I liked how some people said, no, no, we never ate Japanese so uh, soldiers, but some others said, oh, well, you know, whatever we could find. 
yeah, there were so many bodies, they were hanging from trees and so forth. And uh, there's questions around um, whether these are like spurious allegations or not, that these two soldiers actually committed um, cannibalism themselves. But um, like, yeah, the Imperial Japanese Army was uh, cruel to uh, many different groups of people, including like uh, people of Okinawa as well. So it's a, a horrible military machine and um, people forget that's what happens in war. That's what happens with military machines. And Kenzo Okazaki's like the one person bringing this out to light. Yeah. And they were so contradictory with that. Like, you know, we never ate Japanese people. And another person said, no, we ate what we can find. And then another one says, no, no, we never ate white soldiers. We only ate the, you know, the natives. Well, the black like, pigs. Uh, black pigs and white pigs. Yeah. Yes. And, but another one says, no, no, we never touched the black pigs because they were, they were the black, the natives, presumably, because they would hunt us down and kill us. Yeah, they were. They would always escape. Yeah, so there was there was so much contradiction. Of course, historically, we know that they did routinely. I I I haven't read so much about Japanese people. I'm assuming that happened, but that happened to a lesser extent for obvious reasons. But we have documents of them routinely eating prisoners of war, and also, uh, so I mean, allied prisoners, Europe, Americans and Europeans, presumably, and also natives from the islands where they the, there were natives. I think. Uh people listening to this might want to watch Fires on the Plane, both um, uh, certainly the newer one, but I think also the original uh, has scenes of cannibalism in it. Yeah. And uh, I brought I, I mentioned this on Twitter, but Fukasaku's Under the Flag of the Rising Sun um, is similar to Fires on the Plane, but it is, uh, you mentioned that you haven't seen it yet, Jason, is that right? I have not seen it yet. I strongly, strongly recommend it. I, it is my favorite Fukasaku film. Uh, and I would argue one of his best, best, if not his very best. But it is shockingly similar to the plot of the documentary. So just to give a quick summary, it is about a widow who is trying to find out how, what, what happened to her husband during the war. And she goes around, interviews people who were there with him, and they all give her contradicting stories. So it's extremely similar to what Okazaki is going through trying to find out what happened to those two soldiers and you know he was there was a question of whether he was executed or as a deserter or whether he was killed in action which is also a point of this documentary there was uh there was question whether he was executed for cannibalism and there was also there's a question whether he was executed before the war was over after the war was over and she essentially just goes around asking different people including the commander of the battalion that he was in that ordered the execution who is you know also you know, alive and doing well. And eventually, see, she eventually ends up puzzling the whole story together, and it ends, the story ends literally with a condemnation of the emperor, of the emperor of Japan. So it is so, so, so similar to the plot of this documentary. I I'm wondering if it is based on the same source material, although I don't think so, because there's probably a lot of people who share similar stories uh, from the war in Japan. And there are probably stories... From every military around the world, which is what that uh, is similar to this, which is what makes this a sort of universal film that anybody can watch and learn from. Yeah, and I like this applies. I don't think this applies to Japan as much as this applies to the West. But there's one line that someone says, I forget who, that says, "We need to teach young people about war because young people now watch war movies and they think it's heroic." Yeah, and that's certainly. I don't know. I don't know that Japan makes a lot of heroic war movies. I'm sure they do. But we certainly do make a lot of them. Well, you know, in the 90s, in the 80s, 
you would be forgiven for thinking the Americans were on the, the right side of the Vietnam War uh, due to Hollywood propaganda. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, there were people who were making, you know, uh, a, a very poignant heroic, I mean, very poignant war movies, but that was, you know, like if... Like Born on the Fourth of July in Platoon. Yeah, but, or, or, but if you watched uh, John Wayne's The Green Berets, then yeah, that, you would think that was a heroic war. But that was yeah. a little bit earlier. That was 69, I think, or something like that. But yeah, it's just we need, like, as, as horrible and domineering as Okazaki can be, he disrupts the narrative and allows the truth to come out, which is so fascinating to watch. Yeah. And again, I, I, I can't praise, I can't recommend Under the Flag of the Rising Sun enough because there's, if there's any, any effective anti-war film, I would say that and this one, The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On, they would make an excellent double feature because they're just probably the two gr most effective anti-war films that you could ever watch. And watching them in a row, it's certainly going to be a gut punch. And also Fires on the Plane. <laughs> and Fires on the Plane. It's been forever since I've seen that movie, so I don't remember that well. I haven't seen the, the remake, which is by that uh, Tetsuo guy. Right? Shinya Tsukamoto. Tsukamoto, yeah. He also did Tetsuo the Iron Man, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's, I, I thought so. I haven't seen that one. As, as both, well, both are brutal, but in different ways. Like uh, Tsukamoto's one focuses on the body horror. That's not surprising. <laughs> there was, um, uh, just to, to bring a little levity back, uh, there was uh, one scene in, um, in the Naked Army where ok Okazaki is just on his van and he just, <laughs> there's a row of policemen dispassionately sitting next to him trying to ignore him. And he's just like insulting them and banging on his van. And I, I, was, I felt so sorry for the policeman in that scene uh, because I was thinking, oh man, just leave them alone. They're just, they're, just, <laughs> they're just doing their jobs. This is not... Like I, the 19-year-old me would have thought that was so revolutionary and so amazing. But the 29-year-old me thinks, you're just, you're not, this is not the statement you think it is. You're just, you're just insulting salarymen who yeah. don't have a stake in this. <laughs> Yeah, literally, just any, leave them. anybody with a public-facing job knows that these are individuals, they may not necessarily care what their employees um, do, they're just following orders. Exactly, you're not, just, I felt so sorry, because they were just clearly in pain, they were just, they didn't, they didn't want to harm this guy, but they also, they couldn't, they, they, they knew they had no legal standing to, like, prevent him from saying what he was saying, or whatever it was, so they were just, like, there awkwardly standing in a row, trying to ignore him until he leaves. Yeah, and he was just not leaving. He was just, why are you? Are you human beings? And he was just banging on his van. Are you? Are you robots? Are you uh, machines? I forget. I forget what he was saying. But I don't know. I was. I felt sorry for them. You, you could imagine them going to a mess room at the end and just being like, "Geez, that guy again." <laughs> exactly. They're going home to their wives, and this was the worst day ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, Okazaki's back. <laughs> exactly. Or you know how many times he calls them, and he's like. He calls the police, and then when they come, he says, no, no, sorry, we changed our mind. He changed his mind. He doesn't want me to get arrested again, or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, just, uh, if you have to watch at least one film in the series, I think The Emperor's Naked Army, Marches On, is the one to watch, because it has all of these conflicting ideas and emotions, and it, it does have uh, entertaining elements to it as well. And certainly a figure that is, you know, ideally, ideologically, like I said in the beginning, his heart is in the right place, although as a person he might be 
of perhaps questionable morality. Like, what did you think at the end when we found out that he shots his he shoots his son, the son of the general of the captain? Yeah, Koshimizu's son. So, it, um, from what I've read, that uh, he announced his intentions to Hara that he was going to go ahead and do it, and he wanted Hara to film it. Um, throughout the film, you see um, Okazaki trying to direct the film crew and berating Hara at points, and Hara. Um, was introduced to Okazaki by Shohei Imamura and Hara and was talking to a lawyer and uh, Imamura about how to get out of this situation. I think Imamura was one of the producers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, from what I understand, Imamura was originally going to make a TV show about Okazaki, but nobody wanted to touch the subject because it, like anti-emperor, um, anti, uh, and anti-war sentiments were quite controversial. Yeah. And still are. And actually, just to, to bring another parallel from what I read, when um, uh, Fukasaku also ran into the same problems uh, adapting under the flag of the Rising Sun from the novel, nobody, uh, nobody wanted to make that novel into a film, and he used his own money, in fact, he used the salary that he made from Tora 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 to buy the rights of uh, his film. So he, he financed the start of that film with his own money. So there's another parallel there between Under the Flag and uh, The Naked Army. Ah, fascinating. It's going to be a title I'll have to seek out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I strongly recommend it. And in fact, the, the latest DVD release with subtitles by Ling- Linda Hoagland, uh, she's subtitled a lot of Fukusaku films and she's done a great job. So the subtitles available if you can find the DVD on it. Yeah. They, uh, they are very trustworthy. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know about the... I, I, uh, so you said something about... Um, uh, how how did he get out out of that of out of filming the actual murder or something? Well, Okazaki just went ahead and did it without the film crew being around. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, and and he says something like he intended to kill the father, but he couldn't get to him, so he just shot the son, and he thought that was good enough. Yeah, I, I don't know. I th- I think that's something that I think makes perhaps Okazaki less likable than the rest of the film does. Uh, yeah, and his. Like he he feels like he's a divine mess. Uh, he's a messenger on a divine mission, and um, yeah, like he fails in his mission, but then he manages to turn it around and say, "Because the son survived, you know, I'm does, so happy." He does think there. Yeah, he does. He 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 gives the impression that he doesn't want to do half the things that he does. He just he feels like he it's like a Abraham God ordering Abraham to kill his son. He doesn't want to do it, but he feels like he has to because. Of this divine mission that he is, like you meant, yeah, like you said, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. I, I felt the film. I guess, I, obviously, I don't, I don't, I don't suggest that the film hid that from us. But I, it just kind of soured me a little on him uh, at the end. I, I felt that was even for him that was needlessly cruel. Like I would have been fine if we, the newspaper said there was an attempted murder of the captain himself because that's what he wanted to do. Uh, but him saying the sun is good enough, I felt that was just too cruel even for him. And of course, he sort of redeems himself in the end by saying, okay, thank God he survived, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay, so is there any, anything else that we talked a little longer about this, but it was definitely worth it? Uh, anything else that you feel we should uh, talk about regarding the Emperor's Naked Army marches on? Well, again, um, gender roles, and you had Shizumi Okazaki, the oh, wife. Yeah. Like, yeah. she's dutifully following her husband around, and... Um, like she doesn't speak much, but uh, she ends hardly up, at all. Yeah, she she ends up uh, protecting one of the uh, interviewees uh, from her husband at one point, and um, yeah, that's like a, a portrait of uh, a dedicated woman. 
you know, you can't imagine having to live with that. And it's so sad that she just, she just pretty much, uh, she gets injured in that scene. Although it seems like it's more of a, a sort of a scrape on her leg. It doesn't seem serious or anything, but it, it, it is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, but it is like very sad at the end that she just seemed to support him in all his crazy whims. And then she just dies a few years after the film is shot. It's 86, I think he was at a relatively young age. Well, like, um, I think Okazaki's uh, in his 60s and she's a couple of years older than him. But yeah. he's, he's like, sometimes he's thoughtlessly cruel to her. Like he says, prison food's better than the stuff he gets at home. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean that, that I, I thought that was sort of an a inside joke between them. I didn't interpret that as being particularly cruel, though it, it is possible that he actually meant it. I don't know. Yeah. It, he, it is in his character to actually say something like, like that in minute but i thought i thought that was more of a teasing thing i i hope so like the fact is we don't really get too much of a window into their relationship so yeah that, that that's true that's another thing that it seems she's an almost an afterthought as a means to an end for him and the film to to you know do what they intended to do but like that's a portrait of a ded uh, dedicated wife and you see another one in in the next film a dedicated life absolutely and just before we move on to that she dies you know it's she dies while he's in prison i think before because for that second attempted murder murder he's not convicted to prison he's convicted to hard labor which i understand is that is you're still free but you have to do certain things or something like that mm. and she dies before he is released so that's almost you can, if you follow his train of thought that's almost divine punishment for him mm. if if uh, if the son surviving is divine will, then his wife dying is divine punishment because he uses that phrase a lot. Yeah. Okay. So the next movie is the dedicate a dedicated life. What did you think of it? I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. <laughs> now, um, this is the the subject of the film is the novelist Mitsuharu Inoue, and um, Hara and Kobayashi follows him around. Uh, for between seven or uh, five to seven years, something like that. Um, so I think the original intention was to follow him around for ten years, but then he got a cancer diagnosis, and um, it uh, the film covers his final years and um, follows him uh, with speaking engagements and um, writers' workshops that he set up and uh, sort of network across the country and um parties and he's a really um a, like charismatic guy uh you can see uh people are, are bowled over by him there's a romantic element to him but there's uh what i found really fascinating about the film was that people were aware that he might be telling tall tales and um that sort of theatricality the examination of theatricality was really interesting for me yeah, I, I also enjoyed this documentary a lot, although I did have perhaps higher expectations that um, because I've always enjoyed documentaries about, you know, artists and writers and just the creative process in general, although this was not really about that. Um, I will say that the subject of this movie is not as interesting as his previous three movies, the cerebral palsy, the his ex-girlfriend in Okazaki. I think he is a a far more tamer, albeit charismatic, um, a charismatic person. Some some of his appeal to women was a little bit bewildering to me, but 
because he but looks I, so I, nebbish. Exactly. And I don't know, perhaps they were perhaps talking for, a, you know, a time bygone when he was much, much younger. I don't know. I didn't like I definitely saw his charisma, um, not necessarily his sex appeal, but what do I know? And however, his journey towards death and or or to put it more precisely, his his attempted journey away from death. I found that so fascinating. His, you know, insistence that no, 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 I will. I will not, you know, you, you see, you have this image of, you know, of heroic and profound figures sort of uh, gracefully, gracefully accepting death. But he is, no, I want to write more. I want to live more. And he ends up, we get, we get very only glimpses of this, but there's a line that says he wrote so much work during his final years because he had so much, so much that he wanted to contribute. Yeah. And uh, he's much more open with his emotions at times it feels like he's much more curmudgeonly and um, mean-spirited to people when you when you hear the stories that the women around him have to say about like his um sort of uh sexual predations i suppose you could say uh, a much more disturbing figure comes out than uh the romantic writer that everybody expects yeah and i yeah especially when um my my so the most fascinating like i said i didn't think this this subject was as interesting as the subject in the previous documentaries, but one of the most one of the things that made it so fascinating is his fictional world that he had created about himself and how with how conviction he sort of portrayed it. But then when we cut to you know other people in his life, he said, "No, no, his his father was around; he was right there." Or no, I don't think I don't think anybody would have sold their daughters to prostitution, <laughs> or like like, uh, or I don't think prostitutes would have been parading around town like he describes. So he makes he he makes his life sound a lot more poetic than uh, than it probably was. Yeah, like he's known uh, people from his uh, past. Say uh, his mother called him Mitsu the liar, I think. Um, but that's like he managed to turn that sort of talent for lies into a talent for writing novels, and uh, he does state it in one of his writing workshops, which is like, well, you, you have the truth, but what we choose to tell from the truth uh, is fiction or can be fiction. Yeah, I love that little chart that he has, where it's the the truth is a straight line, but fiction is this wiggly line that kind of goes around it, and it doesn't necessarily have to follow it a hundred percent. Yeah. And we get some foreshadowing, sorry, we get some foreshadowing when he says that he used to be a fake medium and he would just lie about it. So that's kind of a foreshadowing of what kind of personality, what kind of image he has of his past. Yeah. And like the idea that the people who went to see him as a medium uh, understood that he was just making this up as well, just um, is reverberated by the people around him in his social circle as a writer. Yes, and uh, however, going back to sort of the uh, the the concept of patriarchy in the Japanese society, he definitely it's not explicitly stated, but it doesn't sound like he was particularly faithful or loyal to his wife. Yet she pretty much was with him at the end, like you said, the 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 epitome of a dedicated wife, of a faithful wife. Yeah, and there's something tragic about it because we get a snapshot of her in her younger days and a book and it looks like she was a, a promising novelist who shelled a career to look after uh this guy who you know barely uh well from uh, from like modern male perspective barely treats her with respect exactly and it's also i 
again, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I got the unintentional conclusion that even the director wasn't that interested in her, despite, uh, like the 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 glimpses that we get of her that makes us feel feel for her are almost a side effect to what the documentary is about, not something that the director makes a point. Although perhaps perhaps he does in that way, and I'm just I'm not I'm just not giving him enough credit. She's in the background, but we never learn too much about her. Yeah, exactly. Like, 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 like I said, even in Goodbye CP, where we just he doesn't. Of course, the documentary is about the protagonist, so we don't expect to spend that much time with secondary characters. But it's almost like the women who suffer from CP are not even considered as nearly to the extent that the male are. And even here, you know, you we get the women that are interviewed mostly about his romantic conquests and, and how charming he is or could be, but not about... We do get, we do get a little bit, so it's, um, I shouldn't be that unfair about, for example, the one, the other cancer patient who sort of had a... Uh, had a her... I didn't get exactly... I'm not exactly sure what happened to her novel career, but he did seem grateful uh, yes. to, to the author. Well, it's in order... To break their relationship, she had to become a Buddhist nun. <laughs> yeah, did she continue? I, I wasn't clear whether or not she actually became a novelist or if she gave up. Because it looks like he was a lot more harsh than helpful with his student, who looked like they were mostly women. Yeah, um, from what I understand, she was a successful novelist herself. And um, the Okay, that's good. And that's the, good. the film states that she left her own family. Uh, she had a son who uh, was four years old, I believe. And she embarked on like a passionate affair with um, the writer uh, in Uwe. And in order to break that affair, she had to become a Buddhist nun. Did she? Because, oh, interesting, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't, perhaps I missed this, but there was a point where she says, I thought that men and women couldn't be friends without sex, but it turns out, it turns out that they could. And I, I interpreted that as a, a sign that they never had a relationship. Although perhaps I missed the part where they did have a relationship. I, I, perhaps that's uh, referencing the periods where she became a nun, but they still stayed in contact because they had that emotional connection. Interesting. Okay. Did you, uh, out of curiosity, are you have his works been translated into English? I, for my brief Google, I couldn't find. No, I couldn't find any of his works um some of them have been turned into films which are on imdb and uh, i think an anime as well two or three i didn't find i didn't see much oh yeah someone uh yeah i i like he's a absolutely new figure for me yeah i'd be curious at least to read some uh i'm looking on amazon i'm not finding i'm not finding anything in english i mean if they haven't been by now i suppose there's not there's not that much interest he's probably up one of those figures that is popular in Japan, but perhaps there's not that much international appeal. Although when he gave like some of his pitches, they seem pretty interesting. I would like to read those, but I'd be curious to read some of his uh, shorter stories. Maybe, maybe that'd be interesting. Well, maybe this uh, documentary will spark an interest in some publisher. I mean, it was released in 1994, so I think if it hasn't already, it's probably not going to. Ah, well, with contemporary publishers these days, they're always looking for content. That's true. Uh, maybe, who knows? There was um, another thing that kind of uh, 
something that obviously not at all relevant to the film, but I kind of focused on just like the camera in the, in the first film was that of course, of course I, I probably knew this, but I didn't, it didn't, uh, it kind of hit me weirdly with that. It's, you, they didn't have typewriters in Jap- in Japanese. So they had to handwrite pretty much any, everything. Mm. So I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure there is typewriter technology that has been adapted to Japanese, but I, I don't think it's, as widespread, and obviously computers weren't that big at the time when he was a novelist. Mm. So, um, so you just kind of—I don't know—that that that was like, I was thinking, oh, what what a tough thing must be to just write a whole novel by hand. <laughs> I like from the post-war generation, like he's just so into it at that point. Yeah. Speaking of which, is also like another another funny not funny but an interesting aspect um like like i said i don't think he's that interesting a person but the film definitely focuses on the most interesting parts of his life but uh when he talks about his membership in the communist party mm. uh, it's like how he made himself to be a lot more important than what he probably was when he was a part of that party and probably just he, he gave the impression that he did it for the appearance more than for ideals. And we get, throughout the film, we get the impression that appearances meant a lot of, it, of him, how he's perceived by the world. Yeah, uh, that just totally fits in with the idea of the artist sort of weaving uh, a, tale, a tall tale to sell to others. Yeah, how he says he was uh, the, the treasure or something. He was in charge of the for- payrolls payroll and he was like no we shouldn't get any payroll and then we have another one saying no no he was just he was just a regular member and he rarely showed up to meetings it's quite interesting that uh in in all of the films you have women subverting like uh the sort of image that men put out of themselves yeah and or the dedicated wife who you know behind every great man is a is a it's a even greater woman that sort of um aphorism uh, and here, you know, the women in his life sort of undercuts that uh, picture that he puts out that, he, like, he's a bit of a sexual predator, uh, philanderer. That S- some women do, and other women, other women glorify him. Uh, uh, they glorify him, but they admit that he has his faults, and you know, they they leave tantalizing details that, like, um, something happened between us, but I don't really want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had like the former member, well, the member of the Communist Party who's saying like he wasn't that important. Yeah, yeah, and he barely showed up to meetings and he was just, he just, uh, he did that, he published that uh, criticism of the Communist Party and he was expelled from the party, which is, that seemed to match between the two narratives, at least. Yeah, but there's like this sort of element of like, we understood that like he's puffing his chest out, but uh, we, we enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do think the the narrative, sort of that that those contradictions. I think it's what makes that movie a lot more enjoyable than you would might think of it on paper. Mm. Um, about you know, obviously, obviously, I personally enjoy you know following writers around, but I understand that might not make the most interesting movie material on paper. However, when you actually kind of learn more about his life as a, a this particular person's life. And you know all the contradictions that kind of uh, surround it, it. It definitely becomes a lot more, uh, a much more interesting film. Yeah. Okay. So, anything else before we move on to the next film? I uh, this is, I believe, this is the first film where you have dramatic inserts into. 
Oh yeah, yeah. So you have like this monochrome, uh, uh, these monochrome sequences set in his past. Um, what did you think of that technique? Um, they they felt a little bit on the nose, but it I it's it, this is not the first documentary that I've seen to do that. So it felt like what you mentioned, perhaps his uh, his jump into more conventional means. Hmm. Like it's I mean that's a fairly common documentary technique. I think just a insert dramatic things describing what the talking head just mentioned yeah um this was again this was the first documentary where i think the involvement of the filmmaker is almost non-existent Mm. whereas the previous three the filmmaker plays a bigger role bigger to the first two than the third one perhaps but here on the the filmmaker's uh, influence the filmmaker's presence is almost with a few exceptions, is almost um, non-existent. Yeah. Yeah, this definitely felt like a transitional documentary style. But you did mention the dramatic inserts, and that was uh, that was a first for him, but it's a good segue to the next film, which is an entirely fictional dramatic film, The Manny Face of Chica. So what, what did you think of it? Um, I, I, atmospheric? Um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of the film. Was it? Uh, I guess it was aiming for something allegorical to retell the, the t- sort of like turbulent times of the sixties, seventies um, through this one person named Chica. Uh, I liked the use of different actresses for the way the men perceive her, but I thought it kind of broke down in the sense that you got the one male character who's uh, persistent in three of the stories and. Um, like the actress change changes only once uh uh never for his perspective i don't know if i've explained that very well no i i i sort of get what you mean i have to say i enjoyed the first two chapters but chapter three and four especially four felt almost like it was a different movie um there was there was sort of a feministic underpinning to the film uh especially you know the how how the woman is perceived in different situation and almost always it seems to be that things are never in her favor until the culmination in the end spoilers alert where she gets killed which i'm still not clear exactly why she is killed well there's uh foreshadowing where like she works at a snack bar and the mama sound of the snack bar is like don't mess with this ex-gangster he stabbed a woman and yeah, but he, yeah, but why though? Yeah, it's, it's like I get, I get that. Like, wh- why he did he stab the first woman, and why is he stabbing there? Is it just a a habit? He just every blue moon he stabs a woman. Is it like I think the character mentions uh, something about never having a mother? So, and, and something about money. There's something about money also. Yeah, it's, um, Chica uses up all his money. Yeah, he loans her money. So the, the, again, but it's I don't know. It it's it feels so. It's it's hard to read. Hand wavy. Exactly. Um, but I, the first two chapters, I thought they were, you know, I, fairly well, uh, you know, her trying to sort of meeting that guy in the, you know, after an accident, her personal decline, also parallel to a, a different sort of decline that happens in the, the with the 60s pro- protests in Japanese society. Um, and then the second part where she's again, a, a sort of a different going through a different struggle. Uh, but after that, it feels almost as though 
it, it feels as though the struggle is inserted for the sake of the narrative as opposed to something that naturally occurred to this woman. It's, it looks like as though the filmmakers are looking for ways to torture the character as opposed to something that the character does because of her own choices. Yeah. Um, and I did like the idea, like you, you also, I did like the idea of using, usually when you use different actresses for a film, multiple actresses, it's usually because of a lot of time passes, but here, not a lot of time passes. It's usually, I think the whole thing happens within a decade or 15 years or something like that. So it's not a huge amount of time. You could theoretically use a single actress with makeup, but the direct, the filmmakers are trying to make a different point. Yeah. Having that youthful, um, Takami Yoshimoto and all the hopefulness that she, like her physicality embodies in the first part, the more mature um, Makiko Watanabe in the second part, and then the Th- that just in the second part looked very familiar. Um, uh, Makiko Watanabe was in Love Exposure. Oh, okay, yeah, that's probably why I remember her. Uh, yeah, okay, and, and like um, the actresses uh, uh, gradually get older uh, as, as relates to the way the men perceive her. Like you've got a university student in the third part who's like I've, ten years her junior at least. Who was who was in the first part? I don't know if it's the same actor, but the character was in the first part. The yeah. guy with a bloody that is beaten up by the professor yeah. because of I I don't know why disrespect. Just, professor just disrespect. Yeah. So yeah, it's like very atmospheric, each of the different parts. And I think the production design was pretty good, the cinematography and all that. I wasn't sure about the musical choices in the first part. <laughs> like, it went from like moody, like sort of darker music to this cheery parade style music from scene to scene sometimes. Yeah. I wonder if if uh, the film would have benefited from all actors changing, like all the actors, the characters, like her husband, who is in three parts, I think, and he doesn't show up on the final part or something. Yeah, he's trying to win it back, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if all if the story would have worked better if all actors were switched. If the characters remained the same, but all actors were switched. I don't I don't know, maybe not. I'm just I'm just wondering out loud. That would be an interesting experiment to do. Although, you know, that perhaps would have taken off the emphasis of her, but I, I don't know. Yeah, this is the many faces of Chica. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And again, the ending seemed, you know, like it had to, like the quoting from the previous film where he talks about tragedy, it feels like this one had to be a tragedy, although there's not really... A, a justification. That much of a justification. There is, there is, I think that it's not entirely without merit. I think there is... Uh, the hints of something great there, but perhaps it wasn't realized as well as it could have been. It's, it's poignant that the son in the final part revisits. And yeah, that that was that was a little bit heartbreaking. Yeah, and like he will never truly know, like all of these different aspects of his mother. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, it's it's a really strong and um, atmospheric drama. Very uh, like considering that. This is the first fiction film. It's very well and done. And only. And their only fiction film, yeah. And it's written by Suchiko Kobayashi, and she was an aspiring screenwriter when she when um, she first met Kazuhara. I don't think she has done anything solo, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, it would be it would be interesting if she tried to you know just be a screenwriter on the side. That'll be because I, I again I think the the. I had my problems with the film, but it definitely shows a lot of promise. So I, so I think she could probably, perhaps, have read more interesting had she been in more involved. But I suppose, I suppose she perhaps is just not interested in that. Mm. And also, like, um, 
when you take it as part of their entire filmography, it gives you another side of Japan in the sense that we're not following iconoclastic figures, we're following normal people and getting different sites of uh, Japan that their films might not have covered. Yeah, we get, I think all his films so far, with the possible exceptions of the uh, dedicated life, uh, sort of make make a statement about Japanese society, whether it is its perception, uh, its perception of uh, women or its perception of uh, disabled people or its perception of the war, um, all make uh, statements on the Japanese on the Japanese society and Japanese culture and all other aspects of Japan. And I think the film, like you said, attempts to do more or less the same thing. Mm in a perhaps a more intimate and a more dramatic way. Hmm. So yeah, it's definitely uh, a a worthy watch. Yes. Yes, I mean if you if you're going to if you're going to if if you only going to watch a few or a handful of the the career of these two filmmakers, perhaps I would say yeah, okay, if you need to skip some, this is perhaps one that you could skip. Uh but it is if you're going to watch the whole thing, there's this will not be a disappointing watch. Will not be entirely disappointing at least. And it's very rarely screened. You can get this in a bundle with uh, Rewa Uprising and Minamata Mandala. For, I think it's $50. Okay. okay, is that a DVD? Uh, no, as part of the streaming deal. Oh, oh, you're talking about Japan Society? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, of course. And we'll, I'll be sure to include the links for that when the episode goes out. Um, all right, so the next one in the bundle is the Senan Asbestos Disaster, disaster which was sort of after a, a, a short hiatus from documentary. So his last documentary was in 94, right? Yes. And this was 2017, so that was quite a break. Uh, this was filmed over a 10-year period, and it follows... From 20, 2006 to 2016, right? Mm. Uh, 2007, 2017. 2007, 2008, 2018. And, um, okay. okay, something like that, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it follows uh, people from the Senan uh, area of Osaka as they uh, uh, launch a collective lawsuit against the Japanese government, who they accuse of allowing them to work with dangerous materials, despite knowing the deadly effects of asbestos. And um, it's a really heartbreaking film, because we are... Over the course of like three and a half hours, we're taken into the lives of these normal people, uh, and we see their suffering. Um, they're given enough time to give us their backgrounds and um, the difficulties they face in their present time. And um, throughout the film, like each of these, uh, many of the claimants actually die. Yeah, and that's 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 kind of what stood out to me. It's just they kind of just drop one by one while this lo- lawsuit is just going on. Yeah, it's like this law, it's grinding on, and the government is not willing to give an inch. And your heart goes out to these people, as yeah, especially since. So, sorry to interrupt you again, but it's it's it was this was perhaps got me mo- the most angry because it seemed like you know, it was such a the it seemed not it seemed almost irrational given all the cost of of litigating this for so long. And just appealing after appeal after appeal, uh, when they could have just you know fought the battle once and said, okay, yes, we lost, whatever. Here's the compensation, uh, which they ended up doing anyway. In addition to all the cost of litigation, so it seemed not worth it. It seemed so 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 irrational. 
from the part of the government. And when they finally met to meet government representative, they're just their attitude is it was almost unbelievably comical. I don't know if you thought the same thing. It felt like it was part of it, like a satire. It was entirely condescending, but I think it's in line with sort of Japanese bureaucracy, which is like you you send out the lowest of the hierarchy, you throw them under the bus essentially to you know take the punishment of having to talk to the common people. And um, yeah, and it's like it's like they are the guys are complaining we're dying. And then the guy just pulls out a notebook and he starts writing. <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing, man? What are you writing? What do you need to remember? Yeah, uh, like, um, so I ridiculous. Th- I think, like, this, this, this similar stuff happens in the West as well. Like, I think I read somewhere that Canada's been fighting this long battle to uh, uh, avoid paying compensation to indigenous groups, and they've spent like uh, su- like huge amounts of money to do it, more than would have. Like actually being spent just given the compensation. Yeah. Well, the, the the I think many of this is for not admitting guilt, not admitting because then the, 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 you set a precedent. Yeah. So you you so so of course I I I said that I don't understand why the Japanese government is doing this, but of course like there's a reason for it because if once you set a precedent in court, then it, pretty much any other case after that becomes becomes a non-starter. Yeah. I see. Yeah. It, it was all a little bit. You know, it took me a little bit of a surprise how similar the court system in Japan is to the U.S. Mm. Uh, but of course, it it makes sense because they rewrote their constitution after the war, and I'm assuming the Americans had a had a hand in that, and probably made a lot of aspects of the Japanese constitution similar to the American one. Yeah, I, yeah. There's there's a wealth of historical detail here. You you get the standard sort of talking head interviews, and yes, the. The people are fascinating to listen to as they give you all sorts of insights into how society sort of formed around factories and um, how people traveled from uh, small villages to work in the cities lured by uh, the chance of getting a a well-paying job. And um, then you had the sort of tragic human aspect of it, which is like they've now inherited this horrible, like, like a horrible series of diseases and they feel guilt because they're a burden on their relatives. And seeing how the relatives are dealing with this, like seeing them lose their loved ones is really heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and not unlike if you remember uh, Nomadland, the, at least the, you know, the background of it, the premise where uh, they worked in this, um, what was it that they worked on her husband? Oh, it's in uh, Salt, Salt Rock Mines. Something like that. I don't, yeah, really, like I don't remember. Empire Nevada, something like that. Y- yeah. Well, are they like an, an industry that no longer exists, just like the asbestos industries in 2000, uh, in 2000 which in, in Japan, which ended in the early 2000s or something. You could talk to coal miners in the Appalachian Mountains or South Wales. Um, I was talking to a friend about uh, this documentary, and he said that some of his relatives worked in like asbestos factories uh, around London, and uh, there was like a compensation scheme. But people who worked during a certain period were locked out of it, and so many members of his family died. That's it's again, this is a, a universal film because workers around the world are exploited, and um, and the. Yeah, and they 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 make a point out of, of about that in the film where they the Korean uh, equivalent group is comes to visit them or something like that, and then they even state that yeah, Italy is uh, they just settle a similar lawsuit. I think he mentions. I think it was Italy. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, Italy. They visit Korea and they find out that the Korean government. I don't think they gave compensation either. 
Oh, was it? I, I wasn't clear. Did they visit Korea or did a bunch of Koreans come to visit them? So I wasn't exactly clear about that. Like a small group uh, went to Korea and he visited um, asbestos mines and uh, like a former miner. Um, and I was, I'm not quite sure, but it sounds like they, they're having legal troubles as well. Yeah. And uh, I also, they make the case somewhat related that it was Korean Japanese. So Korean, uh, Korean people who lived in Japan that worked mostly in this mine. So there was this almost racist uh, or, or a xenophobic element to it. Um, there was, I mean, you might be more familiar with it. I've, I've, I've read conflicting uh, material on this, but there's, is there a history of discrimination against Koreans in Japan? Yeah, Japan was the imperial uh, ruler or the colonial master of Korea. And there was like an exchange of people uh, throughout that time period. And then in the post-war period, you still had people tra- from Korea traveling to Japan looking for... Oh, uh, Koreans were exploited during the war in mines and so forth. I think if you watch the Korean film Battleship Island, you uh, get sort of action-packed view of it. But um, yeah, Koreans are definitely exploited throughout that time period. And there's uh, s- still a lot, um, there's still discrimination against Koreans to this very day. <laughs> Like people will take, um, will adopt Japanese names to hide their Korean ancestry. Um, like especially, particularly with the older generation, there will be some some form of prejudice. Yeah, and it's like there's this one person who the, I think it was Hara or one of his camera operators, uh, who keeps asking him, "Are you Korean? Uh, when when did you arrive? Do you consider yourself Japanese and Korean?" And of course, he has he has a reason for asking, but the guy seems to take offense and says, "Why are you asking me these questions?" So that was kind of hinted that he's probably. He's probably suspects discrimination in that line of questioning. Hara's, Hara thinks he can see discrimination. That's a thrust of the film. And the leader of the claimants, uh, Kazuyoshi Yuoka, he's like, yeah, Koreans, uh, some people uh, I've talked to say the Koreans were exploited, uh, discriminated against. And this guy, he's a naturalized uh, Japanese citizen. He's proud. Uh, he doesn't want to uh, perhaps admit to it. Um, I'm speaking in very broad terms. I'm not saying like racism is prevalent everywhere. We're not we're not experts in the culture, in the local culture, or in the local habits. But um, Koreans and Taiwanese do face prejudice from certain people. Yes. Um, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, there's a. I I I I don't know details, but I do know that there is a lot of racism all throughout East Asia between the various groups and subgroups that exist there. So I was surprised to know that the Northern Chinese don't like the Southern Chinese and vice versa. So even within one country, even within one ethnic group, there is, you know, there's a lot of racism to go around. Yeah. Like um, I've spoken to Japanese people who said like, um, it's tough living in Kyoto because Kyotoites don't like outsiders. Yeah. So of course, and uh, that th- that exists everywhere. But this especially in this particular context, it does. And of course, the documented the documentary provided no data for this, so I can't make a definitive case. But it de- does seem that they that it imply that the Koreans, as a result of discrimination, ended up a lot more in these factories because perhaps indirectly through socioeconomic being in a lower socioeconomic status because of discrimination, they had no other choice. Yeah. And you, you will. This is a dynamic that happens in every country, which is you have immigrants or a minority or just the poor who are easy to push around. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, that again, the, the whole point was that a lot of people, the documentary made sure to emphasize this. And a lot of people said, I'm not ashamed of my work uh, as a, a working in an asbestos mind. I uh, like I was I'm proud of it or whatever it enabled us to uh, to raise our children. Said I would argue that if you have no other options, that's I, I don't know how I feel about that. But but. The whole point was that the document, the do, the document, the government intentionally failed to disc or, or refused to disclose that they knew about the dangers of asbestos. Well, apparently, um, scientists had discovered this in Japan in the 1950s, and people were still, or even early. I think even earlier than that, they say. I think they say before World War II, they had a document oh, okay. saying. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure they do mention it. So, I mean. It, might have gone very fast, but I think they they show it on screen that there was a document before the war, I think in the twenties or the thirties, yeah. where they outlined the dangers of asbestos. Yeah, and yeah. So, and I think that's why they made the distinction be- the be- before seventy two and after seventy two because I, I, apparently the government did disclose something in seventy two, although perhaps they didn't make the best of efforts to uh, to make it as open as they could. Uh, and that's why a lot of people, even after '72, didn't know about the dangers. Hmm. Uh, so it's more of a bureaucracy kind of thing, where the the, doc, the government can say, "Well, we technically did it. Did it's your fault for for not searching hard enough to find that to learn that asbestos was is dangerous and whatnot." Yeah, uh, there was um, uh, how matter of fact Japanese can be sometimes. Where, where there was one woman on screen who was talking about her dead husband. And how she had, she, uh, I forget if she was Korean or not, but how she had been forced to marry at 17. Yeah. And she just, matter of fact, says, oh, I never loved my husband, but we just got married. Yeah. Like she had traveled over with her mother at the age of 17. And the mother wanted to make her life easier. So she arranged a marriage with someone. Or the other one where she just didn't know. But so they, they didn't have a house. So they slept at the asbestos factory. So the children, who never worked in an asbestos factory still had, um, you know, lung problems because they were in that environment. So it's not just the people who worked in the asbestos fa- factories. Even you know, a lot of people lived nearby, which most of them are not mentioned in the film, but they do make a statement at the end. Who also ne- would never consider for compensation in the in the film in the trial. Yeah. All right. So anything else uh, that uh, we can say about this film? Um, it's it's like um, probably. The most detailed glimpse of Japanese bureaucracy that the couple will do before uh, Minamata Mandela, is it? Would you say that? I did not get a chance to watch that. I haven't watched it either. Yeah, so I'll be sure to watch it, you know, before the, the series ends, but I just didn't have the chance yet before recording this. It's, uh, it's a five-hour documentary, and I decided uh, I w- would watch it tomorrow. Um, I have the day off work, so I'll be able to commit enough time to watch it and it's actually uh interesting enough during probably during the making of this documentary because this came out in 2017 uh kazuo was a cameo or had a small role in shin godzilla oh yes so which is also about uh a, a, a lot of it is about bureaucracy it's shockingly little about godzilla which is what makes that movie so great. Yeah. Was he one of the um, experts talking about it? I honestly don't remember. Like I, I, like I said, I 
would not even know what he looks like before I watched this series just a few days ago. So I don't know. I probably, I, I probably would have to go back and uh, look up what he plays and try to recognize him amidst so many characters that there are in that movie. Yeah, that you get cameos from many directors. Yes, yes. Uh, I saw an image doing um, the rounds uh, on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that um, he was one of their um, experts brought in by the government to talk about. Um, uh, he's like a biologist to talk about like the evolution of Godzilla or what, what Godzilla actually is. And Kazuhara's like, I, I can't comment on it. <laughs> I, I don't want to commit to anything just yet. Which I, I, that, that, was also, that was the most accurate portrayal of a scientist on a film because that's what a scientist would say no scientist would do what usually scientists in film do where they have you know like an inkling of data and they can derive so much from it yeah in reality you would say i don't know what it is because i we haven't had time to study him yet yeah uh but okay i mean i i think it was a small role and i so it would make sense that that would be him in that in that role yeah i've just looked it up and uh japan society did tweet out an image of kazuhara in that role Okay, so I guess that, that question is answered then. <laughs> ah, my memory works. <laughs> uh, okay, well, thanks. At least you remember it, because I would have not at all even recognized him. Okay, so the next film and the last one that I watched was uh, Reiwa Uprising, uh, which uh, depicts the, um, the formation and the, the one campaign of the new party and I have to say, this is not the best, the best film. This is probably, probably not the best film, objectively speaking, in the series, but it was my favorite film. Uh, but I'd like to hear what you thought about it. God, this is the first one not produced by Sachiko Kobayashi. Oh, was it not? How come? Uh, I, I haven't found that out. I, I wonder if she was working on Minamata Mandala or something like that. Because That's, she has many behind... Because those two, two happen concurrently, right? Yeah, because they were filming over a 15-year period. Yeah, so I suppose this might have been like a quick and dirty diversion for him. Like, they're working on this long documentary, and they're like, you know, I'll, I'll just take a few months off to work on this other shorter campaign, which is we can probably produce really quickly. Yeah, the, the film came about because um, uh, Ayumi Yasutomi, uh, Tokyo University professor, uh, she was fielded as a candidate for the Reiwa Shinsengumi. Um, party and she actually asked uh, like a lot of the protagonists in um, uh, Hara and Kobayashi's films she asked Hara to document like her life her battle on their uh, campaign trail and uh, this was I think it was shot over three months something like that yeah I mean it was just a campaign and then a few snippets before and after but it was mostly just the campaign yeah it's like um, uh, uh, the campaign to get seats in the House of Councillors, as well as establish Reiwa Shinsengumi as a political party. Now, this is a party founded by Taro Yamamoto, who's a, an actor. Uh, he's Kawada, I think, from Battle Royale. He's, he's the, the one adult, the good one. Yeah, the one that returns was, yeah. to beat the system. Which I did not recognize, like I, I would have not recognized from him here. I mean, it's it's been a while since we've Battle Royale, so I don't, I'm not sure, but... Uh, I had to look it up. I just, I wouldn't have just, if after seeing him, I didn't immediately say, oh, that's the guy from Battle Royale. Not at all. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's the guy from Battle Royale, but he's put on a bit of weight. 
and and his hair is still pretty luscious still though he's one of the most charismatic people you will ever see on screen exactly yeah he was i mean he got pretty much the most votes like a several orders of magnitude more votes than the rest of it at the end where they show the the vote tally for how many how because of the of the complicated systems he couldn't get he couldn't get a post only two people and there were two people put before him uh but he got the most votes but yeah in the in the film you can see like um some of the campaign details and at one point he says like um 40 percent of the pamphlets have my face on it or something like that so you know they're working uh this campaign based on his personality just as much as policy and he even says explicitly he says we were not re- at some point at the beginning where right about they're about to separate and campaign individually he says we're not well known as a party so feel free to use i don't remember if he says it as a suggestion or as a demand or whatever but he says use my name as opposed to just the party reya shinegasami or whatever the party is called uh reya shinsengumi yeah, and like the we we follow uh ten candidates, but the focus is on Ayumi, uh Yasutomi, and the ten candidates seem like they were plucked out of obscurity at the very last moment. So it's like a very daring tactic to use, and yeah, uh, like uh, these are not trained politicians; they're everyday people. I I have a confession to make, though. So mm. out of out of the ten candidates. The actual, uh, prof- the one that we focus on, the professor, it was my least favorite one. Uh, just as a candidate, not as a person. I mean, she's an extremely interesting and charismatic person and very clever. But as a candidate, oh my God, I was just so, so frustrated. So frustrated with her. Was it like the wandering speeches? It was just, she was essentially a hippie with a horse, <laughs> uh, just to put it as bluntly as I can. And perhaps. The thing that aggravated me the most, and again, I, I love this film, so it's it's this is this is a uh, not not necessarily uh, diminishing the film in my eyes, but she couldn't shut up about the children. Save the children, save the children. Oh my God, enough about the children. I would get it. Save the children. How are you going to do it? I need I need policies. I need details. I need legislation. What are you going to do to save the children? Just going around with a horse saying I'm going to save the children is not going to save the children. Yeah. Uh, so whereas everybody else had ideas, he said, "Oh, this law was passed. I, this this is not good." And or or you know they do this, the budget. There's this thing. I don't know. I, I don't remember the details because Japanese legislation is complicated. But the, but that's that's sort of my pet peeve. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you've got one who's close to like having an idea of how uh, how to campaign. It's like the guy that's like ex Goldman Sachs, and he like yeah. At the end, when all the results are in, and only two candidates of one you know it's 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 a massive result because reiwa shinsengumi is now a political party and you've got two candidates in the house of councillors but he's like look um we've got to talk about tactics for the next round i'd like i'm not happy of how this went exactly exactly so he's the, the more pragmatic whereas the 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 main subject of the film was probably the least pragmatic and i think that's why she was my least favorite as a candidate not not as a not as a character i'm i'm happy the film followed her but, but it's I'm, oh my god, she her her campaign <laughs> aggravated me. You'll never vote for her. <laughs> I I don't know that I wouldn't vote for her. I would I might vo- I might have voted for the party, but if she was the face of a party, probably not. It's it's like an interesting contrast to the LDP, which is like shown as a well-oiled, slick machine, 
uh, with all the money and using intimidation tactics that, uh, and you've got these people drawn from, uh, like the populace and it fits into themes of like, uh, communitarianism, which, uh, have been raised in previous films. Absolutely. But, but also, you know, the idea of, yes, I, I, I like the people, but I'm going to figure out what to do once I get there. I'm, that's that's what bothers me. Like I like like I said, I want details, and it, that might just be me because I uh, this was my favorite because I love politics and mm. I I'm especially campaign. I'm very fascinated by it. Um, it's it's a very addicting process. So I like I like the the minutia of how how people how people plan to change things. Just spouting out big ideas is not is not my idea of a good candidate. Although I can see why that works. Uh, or, you know, like to give an example, when she said something uh, and you just hinted towards it, where she uh, stumbles upon the, was it LDP or Comate? What's the other? It's Comato and LDP. Comato. And they're in like yeah. an alliance. Yes. Uh, apparently an unlikely alliance from what I understand, at least when they started, it was an unlikely alliance. Yeah. Uh, but she says, "Well, she has the, she has money, but she doesn't have the support of the people. Well, they got most of the votes, so I would argue that they do have the support of the people. So it's it seemed to me that that's a very delusional, almost attitude to have. And even though, and she's very clever. The the because she's a professor of economics at the what university was it? Tokyo University. Tokyo University. So she she knows. Like, and in fact, she gave speeches where she talked about." ideas and very 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 complicated ideas which i really enjoyed so she definitely has an idea as to why they're and she actually says this why they're misguided why the the ldp's misguided and uh, policies gets people even though it's against their interests but it when it, during the actual campaign she didn't seem to lean onto that she seemed to lean onto the children and the horses so that's that's kind of what aggravated me about her not that she's not an able person. She was clearly like she was a professor of economics. Talk about economics, and she did. She actually did quite a a few times about you know how how automation is kind of is kind of making the old system obsolete, and that's why we need new things, which is a very very real danger worldwide, not just for Japan. Mm. And yeah, it also like the fact that they managed to get votes shows that there's a hunger for alternative political parties, which is happening across the world. Well, yeah, yes, yes, and no. I mean, they got votes, but they got votes primarily because one person, one person's popularity, not necessarily like the rest got so little votes. Like, if I, I wish I could bring a screenshot of that final screen just to show, but I think like he got close to a million votes, and the second place didn't even break the ten thousand. That's that's an indictment of how politics is. So, I mean, that, that's a, certainly possible. I media, I can't claim to. And they did make the case that they weren't covered by the mainstream media at all. However, they did say that because of how politics works, the next elections, which are from what I looked up there in 2021, which which are about the Japan Japan's lower house, uh, they have a lot more chance because they the individuals can get voted. Mm. Um, although, and uh, they said, what's his name? Uh, the Taro Yamamoto. Mm. Uh, is going is going to run in that election. Although, again, I'm I'm worried that he said something like we were we will put a hundred candidates into that election, that next election, or at least that's the goal. I'm I'm worried that he might be the only one to get elected into that in that race because now it's it's not a party, it's an individual. 
I f- one of the drawbacks of the documentary is it doesn't go into detail as to how these systems work. So, like from an outsider's perspective, we could see how the rough around the edges approach uh, inhibits the candidates from, uh, and the lack of a plan inhibits the candidates from actually entering into um, uh, the House of Councillors successfully. And I would have liked more of um, how the mechanics worked. Yeah, so the, I, I agree with that. I would have liked more. I, I did looked it up and i think he was in the house of councillors for six years before mm. but he was i think as an indif- oh, with another political party from what i understood i understood the system was something like you the party you vote for individuals but the individuals give the votes to the party and then depending on how many votes you get that determines the number of people that the party sends in so it doesn't matter who you voted for their their party gets their votes, and then if the party got enough votes to send X candidates, that's how many candidates go to the House of Councillors. So they only had enough votes to send in two people. Two, yeah, yeah. So that's even though he got most of the votes, it just he wasn't the first in line. I'm assuming there's an ordering system. So, so do you think he put himself third in order to encourage more people to vote so that he would eventually get? It? Well, yes, he wanted to have more. Well, he was the he was the only person with his ideals before, and now there are two people that share the same ideal. So it was definitely a win, uh, an extra fifty percent of the people. So yeah, that that was the strategy, from what I understand. Is like he has a big name, so if he creates a party, then the votes that he gets because of his reputation, he can if if they're enough, he can send more people to to the House of Councillors. Yeah, I in any case, I enjoyed seeing different parts of japan on the campaign trail just not just tokyo but going to like nishinari in osaka and how far is hokkaido from tokyo oh i'm not sure it's going to be hours by bullet train though oh because it looks like she made it look like she walked there (laughs) i was i was a little bit confused about that she probably walked from the train station i'm guessing or from the truck yeah, from uh, but yeah, because they go to Hokkaido and then the next day they're in Tokyo and I'm and it looked all all the camera shows is her walking with her horse, so that's why I was a little bit confused. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, Japan guide seven and a half hours, eight hours. Okay, yeah, so it's pretty far. So I guess they drove there and she just walked the last, the a small amount. Well, they were uh, met by a horse at the station, so. Okay, some like that, yeah. But this is, I mean, I think, and they mentioned this, if they just take her again with her ideas and uh, do what the other guy suggested, where they have a little bit more of a plan, a little bit more of a, a better campaign plan. Yeah. Um, and did she say, uh, the professor, uh, whether she was interested in running again? Because she, the whole time, she made it, she made it sound like the, her campaign was almost like an art exhibit, like a new way to communicate. And she wasn't necessarily interested in winning or losing. Did she make it clear that she would run again? I got the sense that all of them were willing to run again. Okay, except that one guy that said, we have to have a better plan. Yeah, well, he was willing to run again so long as they had a better plan. Exactly, yeah. So I, I, I hope they do that. I hope they the same people and more, probably including her, because, like I said, she was probably the cleverest, the most educated among, and the most... I mean, she's a professor of economics, for God's sakes. Um, but she she expressed the least amount of ideas in the campaign trail. So I just... They run again, but with a better campaign plan. Perhaps perhaps the idea, his... Um, uh, Taro's suggestion to run 
to campaign independently. I don't know if that was the best idea. Perhaps, perhaps they should have comp- sh- should have been seen together more. I think it's points to sort of um, one of the remarkable things about the party was, which is just it was newly set up, and they were trying and in a record time. Yeah, trying a completely different approach. And okay, they didn't get that many people into the house of uh, our councillors, but it chimed with enough people like uh, that their name spreads and there's hope for some difference in Japanese politics beyond the yeah. traditional sort of uh, middle-aged men in grey suits. And my understand, from what I understand, the LDP has been in power for pretty much most of the 20th century, most of the post-war 20th century Japan. Yeah, I think it's like unbroken apart from a period around uh, just before the Great East Japan earthquake when you had opposition parties and then the earthquake struck and then the LDP came back into power. Yeah, something like that, yeah. It's, yeah, it's that standard thing of the establishment party having complete dominance and um, people looking for change and that's a common theme around the world. Um, so anything else about this film? It's a lot of fun. It was, I, between this, I, I think it's one of the most fun films in the season. Uh, this and um, absolutely, yeah. Kenzo Okazaki's misadventures, beating up war criminals, and when they did that thriller dance in the middle of the street, that was pretty fun. Pretty, they were pretty good. That was electric, yeah, yeah. I wonder. I, I tried to find her on Twitter, but it's Japanese, so I don't. I don't know if I if there's any benefit to me following her on Twitter. I don't know. It gives. Because she was on Twitter, definitely. I mean, they 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 showed her tweeting various stuff during the campaign. Yeah, they used um like uh, images of Twitter and YouTube just to get across how social media is being used to spread messages rather than traditional media. Yeah, and uh, or the or the one scene where uh, the cameraman I, I don't know if it was Hara himself or someone else that was just couldn't help but focusing on the one drunk guy. Oh, Inishinari. Uh, yeah, she was she was speaking. I thought that, I, I wish. I wish that lasts a little bit longer because that guy was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah, like um, it. I that's one of the as- most enjoyable aspects of the film is that you see a different side to Japan. You get to go to different regions, see different personalities, and yeah, beyond Tokyo, and it's a lot of fun seeing real people interact with each other. Okay. I, I really enjoyed this film as well. Like I said, it was it's my favorite. It might not be the best of the series, objectively, if, if that's even possible, but it was the one that I enjoyed most uh, Most watching. Um, okay, so the next film and the last film of the series is uh, Minamata Mandala, but neither of us have seen, um, have managed to see yet. Uh, perhaps we can give a summary, but I don't know that if there's any point in trying to discuss it. Well, uh, the summary is... Uh, shot over a 15-year period, Hara and Kobayashi examine the situation of people suffering from Minamata disease. Uh, the documentary lays out history of pollution, which dates back to the 1930s, decades-long legal battles against the government for diagnosis, certification, and reparations. And most importantly, it also gives the stage to survivors, care providers, and supporters who are keeping the fight alive. And uh, yeah, uh, Hara and Kobayashi return to uh, the subject of disability rights and um, how individuals' demands are met by the state. Yeah, it sounds like there is also an element to say similar to that of the Asbestos film, 
yeah, it seems to be a similar sort of setup where it's like legal battles, seeing the personal lives of people suffering from uh, horrible afflictions that the government should have legislated you know, protections for or protections against. So, uh, but yeah, and also like um, probably echoes with um, Goodbye CP as well, with how society treats people. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll probably just watch it as soon as I finish editing this episode today. So I'm, I'm, I'll, I look for, it looks very interesting from, it looked really, really interesting. So I'm kind of sad I didn't get to watch it before recording, but uh, there's only so much time in the day. I, yeah, I think it also indicates that we enjoyed the films in the series so much that we wanted to give it the proper care and attention that it deserves. Absolutely. Okay, so I think I think that's it for our discussion. Again, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Japan Society for making this possible in the first place and bringing these to the the um, to an American audience. Obviously, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close, Jason? I um I'd say that uh yeah again uh thank you to Japan Society for allowing us to watch this and for bringing films these films and films and dramas like this uh to a wider audience um it's hard to watch some of these films and this is a great opportunity and it's not just about watching great films it's about learning something about the country of Japan as well and you'll learn a lot from these films uh so thank you to Japan Society and also to um Chiko Kobayashi and Kazuhara and everybody else involved in making this happen. Everybody in those films, whoever is still alive or not. Mm. All right, folks. So that's it for our episodes. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, please feel free to reach us at our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or through Twitter at heroicpurgatory, all one word. Otherwise, that's our episode. Next episode, we'll return to our usual coverage of 90s cinema, tentatively talking about Ang Lee's 1993 film, The Wedding Banquet. Until then, have a great time watching the movies that we talked about. Please check out Japan Society's uh, retrospective on uh, Kazuhara and uh, uh, Satsuko Kobaya- Sachiko Kobayashi. And until then, have a great couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.